Well, good morning again. I had a, a real crisis this last week because um, I understand that there was a, an older gentleman preaching here last week. <laughs> he was so good, they're filing a petition to get him bumped up and bump me down. And he didn't preach with a tie. I mean, like... I'm going to have a staff meeting with him this week. I want to thank Derek for stepping in and Tim in the past, too. They do a great job, don't they? They really do. I really appreciate them covering in a pinch uh, as I uh, headed uh, to California for uh, the passing of my aunt. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit in a few minutes. If you're not aware, um, this is Holy Week. Uh, those of you who have more liturgical backgrounds, uh, Easter is coming up Christmas. Listen to me. Easter is coming up. And uh, this is the week where people, yeah, I got it backwards. People are thinking about the hard things of this week, and that's why today is appropriate. We're going to think about the hard things of uh, Holy Week. Um, used to do a, anybody know what a tenebrae service? It's a sober, pensive, uh, meditative service, sometimes very heavy. Uh, trying to capture what the um, disciples were feeling by the time this week was over and their Lord was arrested and everything else. And so it kind of ends on a heavy note, anticipating Easter Sunday being all joyful. Uh, we already know the end of the story, so it's kind of hard to enter into that. But once in a while, uh, those kind of services are fun. I know Goodwill's doing one on Thursday night. I just want to recommend that because um, uh, they can be done well, and um, I would assume they would. And so uh, let me recommend that to you if you're inclined that way. And uh, who knows what we'll do in the future. We'll see. You know, I don't know what we're going to do in the future, right? Joe's over there. Okay. <laughs> Daily Bible. If you haven't gone when you'd like to participate, I guess you'd have a little bit of catch-up at this point, right? But some could do it. I know somebody got their hands on it soon, and he was way up into a section. It's like, how did you get that far? He was just consuming it. We do sell some. I think we still have them. If uh, you would like to buy one, see Jody sometime. Jody, are you here? She's around. Oh, she's downstairs teaching in junior church. Praise God. All of God's people said amen. Oh, look how enthusiastic that was. All right. Daily Bible, let me go over a few things. Um, you should be up to, where should you be up to? 190 at this point. And uh, last time we talked about the Passover and that great illustration of salvation, which really comes to a head this week in the Jewish calendar and even in our calendar as Passover's fulfillment in the cross of Christ and all of that. Then we uh, went past that. The Spirit fell on the 70 elders Remember, the spies were checking out the promised land, and they copped out, right? They weenied out. Didn't want to go, oh, they're like giants. They'll step on us. And only two people remained faithful. Anybody remember who? Joshua and Caleb. They get to enter the promised land. Everybody else has to die after 40 years in the desert. Man, those were the days. Anyway. (laughs) Korah's rebellion. Anybody remember Miriam getting in her brother's face? And then Korah's rebellion, how dare Aaron take the priesthood all to himself? We're all important. Now, that's a pastor's favorite sermon right there. But anyway, the ground opens up 
Oh, they're gone. Anyway. Then there was the snakes thing. I've got a bunch of questions. I'm going to read through a bunch of questions that I got, okay, just to catch us up, and then we'll look at the word together. And then that great story, I got a great question from um, someone who's not here today, but their spouse is, about Balaam. Remember Balaam? Now, there's a name. Isn't that an interesting name? (laughs) That struck me the first time they came. Your name's Balaam. Okay. And I'll, I'll get into that. We can't do everything, can't answer every question, but let me start with some of the questions I got. And maybe uh, it'll scratch where other people are itching. And let me say this too. If you turn in questions to me, please put your name on it. And here's why. Because sometimes the question you're asking really doesn't tie into everything. It wouldn't be relevant to the whole congregation, so I don't want to take time with that. But I'd be happy to answer it for you. So if I know who you are, I can answer it. If I don't know who you are, it's very hard for me to answer you. Right? Or as Spock's father said, it is difficult to answer when one doesn't understand the question. You guys need to get out more. Anyway, here's some questions. Jay, is, uh, Jay and Mary are on their way to a family funeral also. There's a lot of hardship going on out there. Uh, you know, people who are sick and what have you. And he asked some questions like this. Why does God change people's names? Isn't that a great question? Because they hated their name before. No, that's not why. In my case, it was kind of that way. Huaco. Who came up with Huaco? Never mind. Usually, it's an upgrade. It's an honor. It's an exaltation, as in the case of Abraham, to exalted father, right? Jacob became a prince. Israel. Uh, All of those were upgrades. It usually has something to do with God imparting status on his chosen his people and so that's why those names get adjusted is the joseph narrative the beginning of the 400 years enslavement of the hebrews in egypt if so it seems to be enticed encouraged and orchestrated by god yes the answer class is yes god is sovereign he knows exactly what he's doing right and i answered i gave him a quick answer because i knew he'd be away It's orchestrated by God, definitely. Why did he orchestrate? Why did he want them to go into bondage? He didn't want them to go into bondage per se. He allowed the sinful nature of Pharaoh and his oppressors to abuse the children of Israel. But why did they go there in the first place? It was to save their lives. If you read the story carefully, they were all starving to death in a famine. God sent Joseph ahead. It opened the door for political protection The whole family goes down there. They multiply there into thousands and then millions. You know, by the time the exodus happened, a million and a half plus people left. Can you imagine a million and a half people walking out of town? That's what happened. And so it was to then use the sinfulness of the Egyptians to profoundly demonstrate salvation. I'm going to take you out of bondage. By the way, if you haven't picked up on this yet, you don't understand Christianity. You are in bondage until Jesus liberates you. That's the gospel. That's the Passover story. And so he profoundly illustrates salvation through that exodus. Literally, the exodus, right? And does anybody remember? I already gave you this answer. Why did he... What was one of the purposes in the the plagues, the ten plagues? To judge the gods of Egypt. 
there are no other true gods to judge the gods of Egypt, right? I did say that. How many, how many of you passed the test? Okay. I had another great question with a whole bunch of stuff about lineage, but I don't want to do too much of that right now. However, there's two passages here that uh, were uh, Angela was actually asking this question. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as to a friend. You cannot see my face, Exodus 33 says, for no one may see me and live. Anybody ever wonder about that stuff? How do you see God? You don't unless you're dead. In the absolute sense, you cannot because he's otherworldly completely. You have to have the capacity to see the spiritual God. And to have that capacity, guess what's coming? A resurrection body. You'll have the capacity, right? That body will be able to handle it. Otherwise, anybody ever see the sci-fi movie Sunshine? It's a great, it's a great story. It really is. They're trying to save the world by uh, reigniting the sun, which is burning out. And the closer the spaceship gets, the more people are like fascinated by the sun. They can't, but we can't stand being that close to the sun. Now, if that's true with science and the sun, imagine God Almighty. You can't see him. But he can allow us to see dimensions of him, manifestations of him, one of which is the second person of the triune Godhead coming down in angelic form, who is called in the Bible the angel. I'm going to have to give a test here. The angel of the Lord, right? It's a manifestation. It's, it's called, in theological terms, a theophany, which is an appearance of God. Theophanos. An appearance of theos. Got that? Okay. Everybody's bored to tears already. No, no. Yeah, don't lie. Don't lie. Okay. God called Moses to go up on the mountain with him. He met him in the cloud. This is after the others went up and saw God. This is confusing. Well, they're seeing a manifestation of God, meaning... All of us can say, to some degree, we've seen Jesus to more or less an extent, right? Where we've seen, I don't mean literally you had a vision, although that's not impossible. For those of you who have been well, well trained in certain theological bents, it's not impossible biblically. Okay? But we all know more or less about the very nature of God. And so sometimes when we have, like, let's say, a near-death experience, we say... I've seen God in a whole new light, right? I've seen a different manifestation of God. So that's true. Does that help clarify that? Okay, sure. Okay, I don't want to go on and then get four more questions on that. Okay. Sabbath. How much? Oh, I got to save this one, Brian. This is a great one. Listen to this. Exodus 31. Moses instructs the Israelites to observe the Sabbath day or be put to death. How have we gotten so far away from those instructions? I'm saving that for when I get back to the Ten Commandments. You all needed a break from the Ten Commandments, right? It's too heavy, too hard. Ooh, mean. That mean preacher. Okay, so there you go. No, I'm saving that one. A question for you. Reading this morning, I came across the section where the snakes were biting the Israelites. Anybody remember that? And because of their grumbling, as if that was new, they're grumbling and whatever. 
Why did God instruct Moses to put the bronze snake idol on the staff? It seems to go against everything he would want them to believe. Someone else asked me the same. I got three questions on this one. So that one did provoke you. I'm really glad. That's good. God sent venomous snakes. Moses prayed for them. I don't understand why God would have them erect a bronze snake on a pole to save bitten people. If they looked at it, just think it could be considered an idol. Right? Make no graven image. I think that's all that... I put them all together on that one. So, what happened there? So, God says to Moses, make a snake, bronze, put it up on a pole. There is an illustration here, right? Something put up. By the way, Jesus is the one who's going to use that illustration later in his ministry. He's going to use that verbatim. So, sometimes God allows something so that God can re-illustrate it later. Right? It's called a type. And that bronze snake is a type of Jesus himself. Let me illustrate. Jesus says later, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Duh. How's he lifted up? On a stake. Right? On a pole. So that everyone who looks to him can be rescued. It's a picture. It's an illustration of the walk of faith. Everybody who's bitten... By the destruction of sin, when he looks to the Savior, is rescued. Can you make the parallel there? But now, you still haven't answered the question, John. What? But isn't the snake, like, isn't that the devil? I mean, don't we know? No, we're identifying it with the devil, yeah. But, but that's because we know all the story, you know. Remember, too, the Hebrews, except for usually the um, Levites, are an illiterate people. Most people are illiterate. So you need a visual of some sort, right? You're not going to have a sign that says uh, emergency room. But you could see that snake. Now, why that? Not every item that can be fashioned is considered an idol. The Old Testament commandments about the tabernacle, did you notice how many physical things are made? Pomegranates, cherubs, whatever. All of that kind of stuff, that could have been worshipped too. The problem is in the heart of man. And yes, he knew something like this was possible, but the illustration value and the rescue value was more important. Okay, so it's not a sin, just like our Amish friends think, if you take a picture of each other, that's idolatry. That's a misapplication of the principle. All right? He doesn't want you bowing down to any uh, idol. And, of course, your question is a valid one, because being sinners as we are, guess what the children of Israel did? After this event, and it was used for its rescue and healing uh, experience, years later they still had it, and they were offering incense to it. In fact, I used the title of this thing as a title for one of my sermons. Does anybody ever remember that? That was like two and a half years ago. You don't remember anything I said two and a half years ago. Right? I don't remember most of what I said two and a half years ago. Nehushtan. Anybody remember that title? Wow! Nehushtan. I'm putting you on the board. Okay. (laughs) Hezekiah is a great revival king. You don't know what I mean by that? The children of Israel, in their sinful inclinations, just like us, drift away from God. Left to yourselves, what's going to happen to you? Why does God put us in the church? Because left to yourself, you're going to drift away from God. That's our inclination. They drift away from God. They start worshiping idols, including Nehushtan. 
which Hezekiah named it, Nehushtan, which is a piece of cruddy brass. I embellished it a little, but it's a piece of brass. That's what it's talking about. Piece of metal, a chunk of metal. And you guys are offering incense to it. And so when, re- when Hezekiah brings revival to the children of Israel, he br- tears down all their false gods. He tears down their Asherah poles. He tears down the, the uh, Baals, all of that stuff. And he finds Nehushtan, which was originally commanded by God and said, this has become negative, And he crushes it and burns it. Does away with it. So that's a great question. Was there a risk? Yeah, there was a risk. Have you noticed that God does take risks with his people? I mean, think about this. How was the world supposed to hear the good news? That's not a trick question, class. How was the world supposed to hear the good news? He uses humans. What a stupid idea. What is wrong with him? This is total risk city. Amen? He's trusting you and me. I just want to throw myself in there. It's scary. Are we having fun yet? Okay, because if you're not, I can't help you. Anyway, last questions. Aren't you glad? Oh, no, that's the venomous snakes. Where's the other one? I lost my fingers. Here it is. I'm happy now. Oh, Balaam, Balaam. Remember Balaam. Yeah, I got to get on the Balaams here. The, the, the Baal, Baal, Balak and all of that. So what happened? How come God is so inconsistent? Remember what happened? He tells Balaam, don't go with these men. Then he says, go with these men. Yes? How many of you are not up to your reading? That was the last, this is the last few pages, right? You're not up? Okay, so I have to tell you the story then. The children of it, yes? Oh, James. I'm not, I never mention anyone's name. Uh, so the children of Israel are spread out on a plane, and this was a great question your wife came up with. She sent that to me privately. Huh? Well, I wasn't going to say that, but yes. Um, and uh, the, the Moabites and the Midianites are hanging out together. Now, this is a confusing, there's a couple of confusing things here. They see this mob of people. They know that God's blessing is on them. And everywhere they go, anybody that opposes them is going to lose. So they're like, uh-oh, this is bad news. We better get some, you know, kahuna, some magic guy to come put a curse on them so that they get messed up. I'm going to give you the whole package here because it's really insidious, frankly. It really is. So Balak, uh, Balaam, this uh, prophet who somehow knows a little bit about God. You know, there are true Christians sometimes who are messing around with familiar spirits. They get into occultism and all of that. It's all over the place. We're so messed up today, we don't know our left hand from the right. And it was the same thing back then. So the king of uh, Moab, Balak, he goes, hires this guy. Why don't you come? God tells Balaam, don't you go. He says, nope. Doesn't matter if you offer me a million dollars. Doesn't matter if you want me to be president of the United States. I ain't going because if God doesn't tell me to curse, I can't curse. I thought that was the end of it. No, they come back. Come on, we'll we'll double the profits here. We'll we'll let you be president of the USSR and the United States. That's not literally true. I'm making that up. And we'll give you lots of money. 
the World Bank. It's all yours. Well, you know, I can't do that. So finally, he's, uh, he, he decides he's going to go. The, the God sends a message to him and says, okay, okay, I know what's in your heart. See, here's the problem. When we read this, we read surface and we think everything's black and white. Since when are you completely black and white inside? Uh-uh. He knows what's in Balaam. So he knows a greedy little... He's a... He's a uh, yeah, he's an operator. You know what I mean? He's... he's so he said, okay, you can go. Just say what I tell you. Now, God is not happy with him already. So he starts on his way, and an angel stands in the road, right? The angel stops, and his donkey keeps going off the road. He gets mad at the donkey. He's beating the donkey. And then, if you read this, you've got to crack up, right? The donkey starts talking to him. One donkey to another, I guess, you know. <laughs> and he says, <coughs> hey, when have I ever let you down or done anything? Why are you beating the snot out of me? That's basically what he says. Well, uh, and he just starts talking back to him. Isn't that great? I mean, that's what you would do, right? If your dog started talking to you, say, well, what do you mean? What? Don't talk to me like that. I'm your master. And then the Holy Spirit opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel with the sword. And he goes, whoops, my donkey was trying to save my bacon here. Boy, am I dumb. You want me to go home? No. Now I want you to go because you're going to bless these people. You don't know it yet, but you're going to bless them. So he goes. You know what? So God was not inconsistent. He knows what's going on in the heart of this man, and here's the proof of it. Here's the proof of it. He has to bless the children of Israel. He cannot curse them. He's not permitted, so he's stuck there. But later on... Balak and his people, the Moabites and the Midianites, pull him aside and go, look, we'll pay you big money if you help us figure out how to mess these people up. How was the best way to mess up the children of Israel? Violate their covenant relationship with God. And that's when they got involved worshiping false gods and involved in fornication because they are, their religion is um, fertility cults. That's when God's wrath came down. So Baal, Balak went through with his sneaky, greedy little deal. Eventually, we just don't know that part of the story from the scripture, but we know later. And that's why Balaam gets executed, as well as the Midianites. Now, there's one more question. Wasn't Moses' father-in-law a Midianite? Yes. Have you noticed that peoples have different territorial sections? In other words, they're not all united. Moses' father-in-law and his offspring, Hobab, became a guide for the children of Israel. All of those people were very close to the Israelites and became part of the family, extended. But there were portions of the Midianites that were not, and they were linked up with Moab in a warfare posture against the children of Israel. Does that help explain what actually happened there? <sighs> I think I'm done, except for this, which brings us to our meditation of today. Somebody wrote me this. I don't see if they're in the room here. Cause... Okay. I'm not telling who this is, but it was great. Anybody reading all the uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament think, whoa. <laughs> anybody have that reaction? If anybody has ever done any farming animal execution, I'm telling you, it's a bloody business. And when you... Anyway, it, it goes everywhere. 
I'm just being graphic on purpose. So one of our sisters was reading all this and having this reaction. It actually bothering me, making me squeamish. I was wondering about this. And she was feeling kind of irritated by it, right? So the Holy Spirit... Listen, let me just read it. It dawned on me yesterday as I was questioning all this ugly bloodletting, neck wringing, and dismemberment. Not to put too fine a point on it. This is the cost of our ugly sin. Our sin is vile to him. And this is the cost that had to be paid by Jesus to save us from sin. It was a humbling and tearful moment. Besides, it was repeated constantly. And that was pleasing to God. And we are to be pleasing to God. And that meant obedience to him. I think we forget that. Isn't that cool? It's like a brother here in the room who, as he was reading the scripture and seeing the judgments of God, said, that should have been me. That should have been me. If you're not getting that, well, you're not getting the gospel. should have been me. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take your Bibles. If you don't have one with you, you can take the black one out of the chair. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the passage for today together. I have a short devotional relating to... Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at that account as Jesus enters Jerusalem. We're going to start on John chapter 12, page 1075 in the Black Bible in the seat. John chapter 12, for those of you who have your own, starting in verse 9. Follow along as I read it to you. John 12, verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Oy. (laughs) On the next day, The large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went out and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, my title this morning is Incongruity. At least I think it is. (coughs) Excuse me. There we go. And that's the text we just read. And um, taking a little break from our Ten Commandments, we will return to it when I... Uh, get back after Easter and uh, 
speak into the rest of our Ten Commandments. Some of you know I was just in the state of California to uh, help bury my aunt who passed away. And uh, I'm thankful to be able to speak because when I got there, I was very sick. And um, I called back, and I know some people were praying because my chest was so tight, I didn't think I was going to be able to say anything. And my throat was tight, and I got through it without, like, using a microphone and whispering. And it ended up it was a a very great time of celebration in this particular case. I should probably explain it a little bit. And that is that my uncle was the missionary in our family who was responsible for most of our family coming to faith. And uh, Uncle Al was the person who would speak life to me. I didn't have a lot of male life-speaking roles in in my personal experience. And maybe you're in the same boat. Had to figure a lot of it out for myself. But Uncle Al would always speak life to me. He was serving as a missionary among island people in Florida, among uh, migrant workers in California. Um, His uh, historical experiences were pretty cool. And uh, I'm sure led many people to Christ, he along with his wife, Aunt Betty, as we call her. And, um, And then he took over the mission board he was on. And then 20 years ago, he passed away. And his widow has remained and keeps serving at that mission board, uh, joyfully, amazingly, and, uh, and now just recently went to her reward. And so uh, they're very close to us. I feel almost like they're children of my brother and sister. That's the kind of relationship I have. So let me just be blunt. There was both a great amount of celebration and joy, and also I found myself grieving more than I usually do. I find myself choked up as I'm talking to my cousins and certain memories came up and I was feeling that, that grief and that missing. There's joy and there's fun and then there's grief and sadness. All in the same thing. Very dissimilar feelings. Very incongruous. If you don't know what that word means, it means they're dissimilar. It's like they don't fit together, do they? Feels like... Uh, Oh, well, uh, synonyms for that is different or disagreeing or unconformable. Strange that they go together, but they often do. And as disciples, we need to be not uptight about that. We need to be able to embrace it, that both joy and grief come together. They really do. The world in which we live. The disciples are called to have joy. Uh, I go nuts when I encounter Christians who, like, are in total denial that there's pain involved in this or that I can admit that there's pain, or that I'm sad about this. And it's like, there's nothing unbiblical about that. There's unbiblical to curse God and die, but uh, it's not unbiblical to feel grief and sadness. And if you read the Psalms, I don't know how you can miss it. Uh, here's, here's a man after God's own heart, David. His Psalms are filled with not only praising God, but Lord, help me, I'm angry, I'm hurt. Dash those people's brains out. You know, he says stuff like that. That's what he's feeling. And uh, so it's possible. So here today, we're looking at a celebration. Uh, The children of Israel have high anticipation that their king's going to come. You know, messianic expectations were very high back then. I think some of the uh, believers who follow prophecy have high expectations that maybe messianic arrival is not too far off too today. Anybody think that maybe? Oh, okay. 
So there's a celebration, everybody taking palm, uh, palm branches. Uh, for those who may not be aware, it was the appropriate thing in the ancient East to welcome somebody of stature, a king, a noble, whatever, to take your coats off, to take uh, palm branches, lay them under the horse or, or burrow that he's riding on. The ancient uh, Jews, all of their kings rode on donkeys. It was their tradition. And so when they saw him coming into town, this Messiah figure who's been doing miracles and has crowds of people listening to his teaching, this looks like it. This looks like it. So they get all wound up and they all start celebrating and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's our king. And right in the middle of this is this incongruous reaction. Let's kill this guy. Right? I mean, let's kill him for crimes against the state. He just raised somebody from the dead. That's a no-no. If you read the Gospels, you find that Lazarus, who is especially mentioned in the book of John, which is why I picked the John account rather than the others, is this highly significant figure because raising someone from the dead is not something you see every day. You may have noticed that. But this man was very much alive and having conversations with people. Wouldn't that be a fun thing? What did you see? Well, I saw a light and I was drawn toward the light and I felt all this warmth. And I don't think that's what happened. He knew what it was like to be dead and alive again and he knew the Messiah had raised him from the dead and boy, truth was coming out of this man's mouth and because of it, people were coming to follow Jesus, right? They were coming to follow Jesus. So here's the account. For some reason, this is not working. You got it? Thank you. Great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Isn't that a brilliant tactic? So we got to put Jesus down, and we also got to get rid of this guy who keeps talking about coming back from the dead. I mean, of all the nerve. I mean, if that happened to you, wouldn't you be talking about it? Hello? You'd be on Conan, you know, you'd be on, what, you know, Jimmy Kimmel. One of, well, who's, who's the one? Uh, Colbert, right? He's the one with the uh, Roman Catholic background. He keeps trying to draw atheists back in, right? Isn't he the guy? You'd be on there. You'd be babbling. You couldn't shut up, right? Same thing. So we better take him out, too. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So... On the one hand, you have great joy. On the other hand, you have this profound jealousy. Hey, you're ruining my space. You're ruining my deal. You know, isn't that really the world we live in? Money, status, power, influence. I'll take you out. Just watch me on Facebook. I'll show you how I really am. You interfere with my reputation. You interfere with that. Isn't it? It's all about power and my position. And that's exactly what was happening uh, with the, the powers that be. Not all the Jews, because many of them were believing on Jesus. It says that. So there's both affirmation and opposition all at the same time. Where are you at today? Oppositional? Joyful. Happy he's alive? Happy to follow this king? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So here's an, I'm still stuck, so thank you, Ryan. I'll just ask you to help me out here. Go to the next one if you could. Yeah, the next slide. Uh, oh, I'm so bad. Yep, back up. You were right. So the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing witness to him. They were bearing him witness. But on the other hand, the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. You're messing up my parade here. You're ruining it. And yet the ones who saw him and believed in him that knew about Lazarus, they're the ones bearing witness to him. And that's where my question is, where are you at today? Do you bear witness to him? Is he the living Savior who transforms your life, or is he kind of an inconvenience? Gesundheit. I think even in, in churches, Jesus very much becomes inconvenient. I've been interacting with a church that's uh, just been through what we went through, how many, four years ago, the ministry mapping team. The ministry mapping team has given them some suggestions. If you want Jesus to use this church, you're going to have to do these things. Guess what they're not doing? These things. Why? Because I'm going to lose power. You can, it, it's, you can see it like a freight train. It doesn't take rocket scientists to figure this out. I'm reading through their data. I'm saying, I know, I know these people personally. It's like, can I, would you let me help you a little bit? You're making a mistake here. You're making a bad choice. Jesus is inconvenient because you're going to lose your control. You're going to lose your traditional. Well, you know what the scariest thing is for churches? What if God actually showed up in here? You think it might upset things? Are you fibbing? <laughs> it will upset them. Well, I've never seen that. I'll give you an example. In fact, well, no, I better not. I'm going to stay on task. Yes, it will. Because for some people, Jesus is inconvenient. Even those who say they believe in him. Yeah, it's convenient for me to follow you up to this point. So I want to commit my children. I want to stand up in front of the church and I want to commit my kids to the future for God until he calls them into mission work. No way. Oh, no, no, no. You're called to be a, an accountant and make a lot of money. No, I've seen Christian parents do this. It's inconvenient if Jesus shows up. Are you following me? Okay. See, real discipleship is, okay, Lord, what's the question? I'll do it. It's not always easy. Trust me, it's not always easy. But in the long run, it's really more fun. There's more joy in following him than being in the crowd that's saying, we've got to get rid of these guys. But really, it happens even for us, right? Can we go to the next one, brother? Thank you so much. For example, that's about Holy Week. That's the story of Holy Week. What about our personal holy lives, the lives that we're supposed to live? Look at this. Think about positive and negative at the same time. It is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his wonderful name, the New Living Translation. That's Peter. Think about how many of our brethren around the world today. There are more people persecuted for the gospel today than in the early church. We have all those great stories from the early church, but they've left them in the dust statistically. People who suffer for the name of Jesus. Every time I think I have problems, I reset my dial and go, wait a minute. Thinking about those brethren in Myanmar who have to sneak around to preach or share the gospel, and then if the 
authorities find out, they come in and it's ugly. It's like, whoa. Yet they have joy and they're not willing to let go of it. Like the old Russian saints, when, when communism was repressing Christianity, would hold on to their Bibles even as the soldiers beat them with their batons. They wouldn't let go. Are they crazy? No. They have found a joy and a savior that raises the dead. And they're not willing to turn back. Same thing happens. So we have that same incongruity in our Christian life. And sometimes, if I can say so, it's even not outside, but it's inside. If we go to the next verse, here it is. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Have you ever felt that way? (laughs) Thank you. I have an honest sister here. Yeah, like constantly. One of the best things I can learn as a disciple is to get in touch with my own depravity. I'm in touch with my own depravity because if I know where I'm broken and weak, then I can fortify myself against that by the grace of God. I need to be in touch with my own depravity. And we know what it's like when we encounter people who just don't seem to be self-aware. They don't seem to be aware that they're destructive in what they say or their actions are causing damage. And it's like, it, it just doesn't register. The normal Christian life is one of continually wrestling with this incongruity that we have both the goodness of God, the Holy Spirit's presence in us, the new nature implanted, but we also have this downward pull of indwelling sin. If I can be conscious of that, the precious Holy Spirit will lift me above that downward pull. That's part of that holy walk. Speaking of that, it's sometimes within us. Let me just give you good news because you heard that and you're going, oh boy, here's the greatest verse, right? There is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according. Oh, here's the answer. I'm sorry, there's a little extra tagged on. We like the first part. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes! Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yes, my brothers and sisters, even in the church, there's those who walk according to the flesh and those who choose to walk according to the Spirit. Anybody believe me or not? Some people think it's all, it's all one or the other. You know, it's like, I got the Holy Spirit, so then everything I'm doing is of the Holy Spirit. Oh, boy, are they dangerous people. Woo! I've encountered a few of those. Kind of wish they'd guilt. Well, anyway, and um, they don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That work of the Spirit will lift me above that downward gravity of sin. So there really is freedom as a disciple to know that I'm not condemned. That's why we celebrate this table today, amen? He has paved the way for us in spite of our brokenness. And knowing our brokenness and it's covered by the blood of Jesus is a wonderful, liberating truth. And out of that freedom of knowing I'm covered, I strive toward walking in the Spirit. I don't lay down and play dead. It's a constant, growing struggle. Why does it... You know, one of the verses on my, my aunt's um, program from the, from the funeral, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. Now I know laid up for me is a 
wreath of victory, right? I have fought the good fight. And it's not like, oh, it's a miserable battle every day. It's so horrible being a Christian, trying to be a goody two-shoes. That's not what it's like. There should be a joy in spite of the incongruous opposition, sin, and negativity. There's a joy that carries us. Amen? There really is. So that was my thought. I think from within ourselves, I'm going to show you three pictures right in a row. Sometimes it's from outside. Sometimes it's inside us. We go from this, can't see that very well, but, no, that's the wrong one. That one, that's the celebration, right? Palm Sunday, welcome the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We invite our king into our lives, amen? We have a king. There is a king. Whenever I do communion, I'm always quoting it from Tales of the Kingdom. There is a king. Satan is the one who says, there's no such thing as a king. Death to all pretenders. But there is a king, and I'm loyal to him. But we go from here celebrating with the slightest shift of circumstances in our life. We go to this. Boy, am I mad at him. We got to take him out, and everybody talking about him, too. Take him out. I find myself sometimes when I'm in a crotchety mood, I don't even want to hear your positive, I love Jesus. <laughs> go away for now. Nobody else has ever had that problem. But then we ultimately can come to this. One more picture. The Lord's table. He invites us into his life and his blessing and his liberation. We're going to gather around the table. Some of you remember um, Ray Lightcap, who came and spoke at my installation in fact, you wanted to hire him immediately. I've never forgiven you for that. That's a joke. Ray was a dear friend that I met working at a camp for handicapped children across the river, um, Camp Joy and Camp Hope. When I met him, it was a very cultural, shocking experience because I was a good, brand-new Christian cleaned up and sanitized, had cut my beard off because those were the hippie days, and I was a good Baptist, and I wore a suit and tie. First Baptist of Flushing, New York. Ray Lightcap was a Pentecostal preacher who looked like a hippie freak. I'm like... I mean, I was so bad, I'm like... Talk about legalism, you know. I was like, can this guy really be saved, you know? And then I found out Uncle Wynn asked him to come lead us in communion as a camp staff. And Ray got up and began weeping. And he said, Lord, this is a very sad ceremony. And yet at the same time, it is a very joyful ceremony. Just like being with my relatives in California. We're rejoicing in the victory, but we're sad and we're missing and we're remembering and we're weeping and celebrating and crying and rejoicing and weeping. Are you getting it? Last, it's totally incongruous. Last thing we need to do is judge each other when we celebrate the Lord's table. People are foolish when they do that. 
Why didn't you partake? Why are you sad? Why are you smiling? Why are you praising God? Jesus just died. Oh, it's all true all the time. Leave him alone. You do business between you and your Savior. You may be rejoicing. You may be weeping when you look at your own darkness. It's all good. Don't be afraid to embrace it, okay? If you're a visitor today, I just want to tell you we're glad you're here. There's a little card you can fill out. Give it to one of the ushers or me. There'll be a couple of pastors up front, um, Pastor Tim, me, uh, Derek. If you want to talk about knowing Christ, you're welcome to come to the table. But this table is for disciples. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Oh, they're already there. And get ready. And we're going to start by standing together and singing, and then we'll gather around the table. Those who are serving, if you would come forward. And we're going to invite you to do like those early disciples on Palm Sunday. Take action. If you want to celebrate your Savior today, you come forward and take the bread. Take of the bread up front. Take the cup back to your seat. We'll celebrate the cup together in unison. Okay? Let's sing together.
which is safe, and we have water in the middle for those of you who have problems with grape juice. So nobody needs to be left out who belongs to Jesus. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to come down the center aisle and then return around the side back to your spots. I'm going to ask those who are serving to come forward. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for that great day of celebration of the children of Israel welcoming their king. We're sad that there was rejection on the part of leaders, on the part of the world and the Roman Empire, that really what happened was a result of the sins of the whole world. We all have that inclination to be against you. Thank you that you were willing to go through the events of this week, including the supper with your disciples, as emotionally stressful as that must have been, prayer at Gethsemane, arrest, abuse, sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for all of it. We bless you and thank you in the great name of Jesus, who is our Savior, who we worship today. Amen. Amen. Stand and come on down.